The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity and the privilege that we have this morning as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to gather together to worship you, to praise your name through song, and to attribute honor and value to your word by studying it, that we might learn how to think as Jesus Christ thinks, that we might live as you would have us to live, that our lives may be an eternal testimony in the angelic conflict. So, Father, now as we submit our time, our concentration, our focus to your word, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make the doctrines, the things that we're studying so clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we spent most of yesterday, had about, what, eight or nine men show up to help us move. And so I am, Joe asked me this morning on the way and said, well, are you tired? I said, well, yeah. He said, physically or mentally? And I said, both. It's hard to move, but we're in. And it was nice to be in and settled. And it's almost like Christmas opening all those boxes that have been in storage for so long. Things you discover that you've forgotten you had. One announcement that I failed to mention earlier uh, just learned that um, Diane Cuthchuck's father passed away yesterday, so we need to remember them in prayer. They've left to go up, up there and take care of that, so we need to remember that. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. We have been studying the doctrine of justification. Justification by faith alone. Just a brief review to help us orient our thinking this morning. Justification is a doctrine that some people have difficulty understanding. Even the Apostle Peter had difficulty understanding it, which is why we have this passage in Scripture, because he forgot the import of justification and the basis for justification. He yielded to the pressure of a number of Judaizers, Jewish legalists who came to Antioch from Jerusalem, and as opposed to, as opposed to operating on grace and with grace orientation to Gentiles eating and uh, socializing with Gentiles, uh, which had been forbidden under the Mosaic Law, he goes back to operate under the Mosaic Law and the legalistic principles established by the, by the Pharisees. And so these Judaizers come in and they say, Peter, Peter, you're never going to really make it if you don't have moral righteousness. You've got, you can't uh, run around with, with Gentiles and enjoy fried shrimp and crawfish and oysters and pork and all of those things forbidden by the law. You can, they're very good. You can't enjoy that and have any kind of spiritual life. You have to have some moral righteousness as defined by the Mosaic Law. So you better straighten up and get away from those Gentiles. And Peter yielded to that pressure, and he forgot that justification is not based on personal morality or personal righteousness, but it is based upon the righteousness of Christ. And what we have seen in our study is that justification 
comes from the Greek word, the root of which is the noun decay, D-I-K-E, which forms the noun dikaiosune, the uh, noun dikaios, the adjective dikaiosune, and the verb dikaiao, which means justification, to be justified, and also has the idea of righteousness. So this means that justification is built upon another doctrine, and that is what the Bible teaches about the concept of righteousness. That, again, is built upon what the Bible teaches about the integrity of God. The integrity of God is composed of three aspects of divine essence. Uh, I use the symbol plus R to indicate perfect righteousness. God is perfect, absolute righteousness. This is the standard of His integrity. It provides the norms by which He evaluates and judges all creation. Then there is His justice. His justice is the application of that standard. God is perfectly fair to all His creatures. And then there is the love of God, which is the motivation of divine integrity. So we have to start here understanding a basic principle that what the righteousness of God demands, the standard, what it sets up as that standard, what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes, the justice of God applies, motivated by the love of God and expressed through the grace of God. Grace is God's policy throughout the ages towards his creatures. Grace is unmerited favor. So if the righteousness of God is the standard, what the righteousness of God demands, then if the righteousness of God rejects something, then the justice of God condemns it. But the love of God provides a solution as expressed through the grace of God. What the righteousness of God then approves, the justice of God blesses, and the love of God motivates God to to bless in abundance the believer as expressed again through grace. So the integrity of God provides the basis for understanding salvation. So here is God, here, perfect righteousness. Over here is the creature, minus R. No matter how good we are, our personal efforts, the highest, our highest and best, can never gain God's approval. Isaiah 65, 6 says, For our righteousnesses, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's not our sins, it's our righteousness. Those things that we want to brag about, pat ourselves on the back about, those things that we think really ought to impress God because we were so good, we did something for Him, the Scripture says that does not cut any ice with God. It's filthy rags because God's standard is higher than our best. God's standard is absolute perfection without any flaw. So how can we ever meet God's standard? Because God provides the solution through grace. And God's solution is that at the moment of salvation, God the Father's justice imputes to the believer the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Experientially, we are still a sinner. We still have a sin nature, and you will still sin, and there is no sin that you could commit as an unbeliever that you can't still commit as a believer. 
That's one of the problems that underlie the situation we're dealing with in Galatians 2, the historical situation, and it's a problem that has plagued the church throughout the centuries ever since, is that somehow people get the idea that just because you are now a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you're not going to commit some sins and commit some offenses that an unbeliever commits, that you're not going to do some heinous action that is so offensive that you are not going to be somehow, just because you're regenerate and you are now in Christ and have a new nature, that somehow that lessens the impact of your sin nature. And that's a false concept, and it's led to all kinds of heresy, because at its root, what it's doing is it's putting the emphasis on your obedience and your morality as the basis for your relationship with God. And our morality and our righteousness can never do that. It's based upon what Christ does for us completely. So at the moment of salvation, God the Father imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ as our permanent, eternal possession. So that when God the Father looks at us, as the hymn said, we are clothed in righteousness divine. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because of that, He declares us to be just. So we are justified, not on the basis of works which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. We are plus R because this is Christ's righteousness and it is our eternal possession. We still have a sin nature. We can still sin. We can still commit all kinds of sins because that sin nature still has power over us. It's been broken by the cross, but it still has power over us. But we are declared to be righteous. So now we are acceptable to God. What the righteousness of God approves, God the Father's righteousness looks at our righteousness in Christ and approves it so the justice of God can bless us. And that's the issue in this passage that we are studying. We saw last week in verse 16 the basic principle. Nevertheless, retranslation, because it's a causal adverbial participle, because we know that a man is not declared righteous by means of the works of law, by, in the Greek text, For those of you who are visitors, I always do my studying in the Greek text because it's always more important to get to the original language, to know exactly what the original says as opposed to uh, looking at a translation because many translations reflect the theological biases of the translator. And in this passage, because the context clearly is the Mosaic Law, that's what Peter was wrestling with, the translator decided to translate this with a definite article and a capital L. But in the original Greek, there is no definite article, which emphasizes the quality of the noun. The definite article in Greek functions different, differently in grammar than the definite article in English. And they would remove the definite article sometimes to emphasize the quality of the noun. So that would include not only the Mosaic Law, but would be broad enough to include any system of law any system of rules and regulations that man comes up with to try to gain the approval of God. So Peter, I mean, Paul lays down the principle, Peter, because we have known that a man is not declared righteous by means of the works of law, any law, not just the Mosaic law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed, we believed already with results that we continue to be saved, 
that we might be justified, declared righteous by means of faith in Christ and not by means of works of law, since by means of works of law no flesh at any time shall be declared righteous. What a profound statement that justification is totally based upon the object of faith, which is Jesus Christ, and appropriated by means of faith, and has nothing to do with obedience to any kind of do-good system. And then Paul goes on in verse 17 and following, and it's, it's a very difficult passage, and I've wrestled with this quite a bit to try to understand the impact of this. But what Paul is doing is using a very rigorous system of logic here in verses 17 and 18 in order to show that Peter is completely inconsistent in his behavior and that no matter which way he goes, he has put himself in the midst of a logical fallacy. Let me read verse 17. But if... While seeking to be justified by means of Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, if you look at what is said in verses 17 and 18, you see that it both involve an if clause, which sets up a hypothetical condition. In the Greek... In English, there's only one way to state a conditional clause, and that's with the word if. Greek is a little more precise, and there are four different ways in which you can express a hypothetical situation in Greek. You can say if, and we assume it to be true. If, and we assume it not to be true. If, we don't know whether it's true or not. And if, I wish it were true, but it's not. Those are the four different ways in which a Greek can express an if clause or hypothetical condition. Here we have the first class condition, which means if, and we assume it to be true for the sake of argument. This is what's called a debater's first class condition, and often someone would take a position just for the sake of argument, and then they would refute it. Now, to understand and to break this passage open, we have to go to the very last verse. Verse 21, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, or in other other words, I do not void or abrogate the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That's the point. All this discussion that I've been going over with on righteousness and justification is summarized right there. That's the point that the apostle is making. If righteousness, if this righteousness right here that gains us approval with God comes through legal obedience, obedience to some moral code, some system of ritual, some religious system that puts its emphasis on human works, then Christ died needlessly. Why? Because if, that, if we can achieve this level of righteousness on our own, then there was no need for Christ to pay the penalty for our sins. Christ went to the cross to die as our substitute. He died in our place. The scripture says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The penalty for sin is clear. The wages of sin is death. It's spiritual death. Eternal separation from God the Father. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God 
is eternal life in Jesus Christ. It is a free gift. Christ died on the cross for our sins. Because of His death on the cross, because our sins, every single sin in human history, is imputed to Jesus Christ on the cross. That means it was God the Father credited it to His account. Every single sin that you commit was known to God in eternity past. Hundreds of thousands of millennia ago, God the Father in His omniscience knew every sin you would commit. You can't surprise Him. God in His omniscience knows all the knowable. That means He never grows in knowledge. He never increases in knowledge. He knows everything there is to know. He knows every single sin you've committed, every single sin you will commit. He knows all about the sins that you think are secret, and He knows all about the sins that will shock you that you will commit in the future. And He took every one of those sins and He imputed it to Jesus Christ on the cross so that they were paid for completely and totally on the cross. Because of that, because Jesus Christ, He who knew no sin, was made sin for us, His perfect righteousness is then poured out or is then imputed to the believer at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone so that the believer then has the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul concludes by saying, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ did not need to die at all. And that just abrogates the whole concept and principle of grace. But grace means unmerited favor, and it is a free gift. It is not based upon what we have done, but it's based completely and totally upon what Jesus Christ did and His complete work on the cross. So that's the point that the Apostle is driving to. But before he gets to his conclusion, he's going to give us a couple of examples to disprove the argument or the objections of the opponent. So we have in verse 17 the first objection. He's going to put words in their mouth. And apparently the contention of the legalists was this. If you claim to get your righteousness from Christ and then you sin, you're making Christ the author of sin. You don't have very good righteousness if you still sin, do you? If you claim that your righteousness comes from Christ, and you sin, then Christ doesn't have very good righteousness, does he? That's the point. That's why Paul puts it this way. If while seeking to be justified or declared righteous in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners... Is Christ then a minister of sin or the author of sin? May it never be. He uses an incredibly strong Greek phrase here, meganoita. May it never be. He sets up, he's taking what they're saying and he sets up, I'm going to translate it into a logical syllogism. Logical syllogism, you have a major premise, a minor premise, and then a conclusion. The major premise is Peter derives his righteousness from Christ. That's the claim. Then the legalists come along and say, Peter, there, then Peter, if your righteousness is flawed and you sin, therefore Christ is flawed. He is the author of sin. That's their logic. That's what they're saying. But what's the problem here? The problem here is they don't understand the kind of righteousness that Peter's talking about. 
They don't understand the kind of righteousness that Paul is talking about. They are understanding this to be moral righteousness or experiential righteousness rather than the imputation, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because they're putting the emphasis on morality instead of on the imputed righteousness of Christ, then whenever Peter sins, they think this somehow impugns the nature of Christ. And this is typical of any legalist. Legalists come along and they put all the emphasis on morality, usually some kind of external form of of morality, and pay very little attention to the most devastating of all sins, which are mental attitude sins. Sins like bitterness, anger, jealousy, hatred, guilt. These are the sins that eat away at the soul and destroy the life. And these are the sins that legalists pay very little attention to. They want to emphasize external sins. And they get all upset. Someone goes to a movie. Someone has a drink of alcohol. You know, it's interesting that 40 years ago, 90% of all Christians surveyed by Christianity today thought that, that if any Christian partook of alcohol, it was a sin. And one of the more interesting surveys uh, was taken about 10 years ago. And the numbers completely switched. 90% realized it wasn't a sin, which is what we studied a few weeks ago. Drunkenness is, but the Scripture never proclaims just drinking alcohol, having wines a sin. We saw that in our study of John 2 several weeks ago when Jesus turned the water into wine. But legalists always focus on the overt. And they try to build some case for overt morality rather than what really changes a life, which is the internal transformation that takes place at salvation. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. It must be a change from the inside out and not just a superficial transformation on the outside. That's why Jesus accused the Pharisees, some of the most moral people of all time, were Jesus' avowed enemies because Jesus challenged their overt system of morality and said they were like whitewashed tombstones. They were clean on the outside, but on the inside they were full of dead men's bones. There was no reality there. So Paul challenges Peter here in verse 17. He says, look, Peter, you succumbed to the, to the uh, legalists, and this is their argument. They're claiming that you're, if your righteousness is... Um, if, if your righteousness comes from Christ, then your, the righteousness is flawed and you sin, then you, you're just never, never were saved, or, you're righteous, or Christ is the minister of sin. And Peter, the problem is you've got to understand the kind of righteousness that we're talking about. And then he goes to verse 18. In verse 18, he sets up another, uses another debater's first-class condition and sets up another situation. He says, if I rebuild... What I have once destroyed. See, this is exactly what Peter did. He rebuilt what he once destroyed. What happened in Peter's life? First of all, Peter had a vision in Acts chapter 10 where God, where he saw God lowering a tablecloth from heaven. And on that tablecloth were all matters of manner of animals and food that had been forbidden under the Mosaic law. And God said, Peter, take and eat. Peter said, no, Lord, I'd never touch that kind of stuff. It's forbidden by the law. See how self-righteous he is? Then um, the Lord said, no, Peter, I said, take it and eat. Three times the Lord had to command him to eat it. Finally, the Lord had to just slap him upside the face and say, Peter, if I've declared it to be okay, it's okay. Okay, Lord, I'll, I'll eat it. 
And the point was that that the Lord was making that because of the death of Christ on the cross, the Mosaic law was finished. It was no longer valid for the uh, church age. It was never valid as a point of salvation. It was never a means of salvation. It was to point the way to sin that man could never live up to the Mosaic law and therefore man needed a savior. But the Mosaic law was no longer to be valid, no longer an emphasis for Jews because Israel was on their way out and God had a new people in mind and that is the church age believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians who are in Christ. There's no longer Jew nor Greek in Christ. So Peter finally got the point, and then he is called to go to the household of Cornelius, who is a Gentile. He goes to the house of Cornelius, and he gives him the gospel, and he doesn't pack in the Mosaic law with it, because Peter understood the point. So he goes from the vision, he goes to Cornelius, and he says, you guys can be believers, all you have to do is trust in Christ alone, the Mosaic law is not an issue. Then he went back to Jerusalem, and... The Jewish believers there were all upset that he'd gone to a Gentile, and he explained why and what the dynamics were, and they said, yes, you're right. The issue now is grace. The issue has nothing to do with the Mosaic Law. Judaism's out. And then we come to the situation here where he is in Antioch, and he rejects what he's learned about grace and legalism, and now he's back into legalism and emphasizing the Mosaic Law. What did he do? He he came along here and he destroyed the law. The law is no longer in effect. And then when he comes to Antioch, he's going to reverse himself, and he's going to rebuild the law. He's going to say, okay, I was wrong. Now you have to rebuild the law. The point that Paul is making is, in verse 17, what we've looked at already, he's saying, Peter... Either you were wrong then, and you're right now, or in verse 18, you're wrong now, or you're right now, and you were wrong when you were destroying the law. In either case, you were wrong. For for if I rebuild, that is, if I'm going back to the law and rebuilding what I had once destroyed, if I rebuild what I have once destroyed... I prove myself to be a transgressor because if I'm saying I'm right now, then I was wrong and I was a violator of the law back here when I was saying that the Gentiles could be saved without the law. And if I was wrong then, then I'm a sinner, verse 17, and Christ would be a minister of sin. And so Paul is basically using a logical technique of setting up a horns of a dilemma dilemma that you were either right then and you're wrong now, or you were wrong then and you're right now, but these are the only two options. And if either one is the case, then you are still a sinner, and because you're still a sinner, you cannot get to heaven on the basis of your own moral perfection. Why? Because the issue is not what you do. The issue is the perfect righteousness of Christ, and when that is imputed to you, then you are justified by faith alone and not by the works of law. So Paul drives the point home to Peter. And then he brings us down to the practical application of it in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, 
and delivered himself up for me. This is a very important verse. He talks about, first of all, I have been crucified with Christ. And here we have a perfect, active, indicative. Or a perfect, passive indicative. Now, I parse a verb here because verbs are very important. And this is the verb staureo. S-T-A-U-R. E-O-O. S-T-A-U-R-E-O-O. Staureo. And it means to crucify. Now, every aspect of Greek is important of the original language. Some is more important, more significant at times than others. But this is important. A perfect tense. Perfect tense emphasizes the completion of an action in past time, that it's complete. Sometimes, and all it's doing is emphasizing the present reality of some of a past action. Even though it occurred in the past, I was crucified with Christ in the past, I'm emphasizing the present benefits of that. I am crucified with Christ. And that would be what's called an intensive perfect. But this is an extensive perfect because it is contrasted to a present state. So what Paul is emphasizing here with his perfect is the completion in the past. I have in the past been crucified with Christ. At this point, when I was on the road to Damascus, I put my faith alone in Christ alone. And at that point, I was identified with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. This is what we call the doctrine of positional truth. Let me... Draw it out this way. You come as an unbeliever to a point where you realize you need to be saved. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of your sins. So you come to the cross and you put your faith alone in Christ alone. And at that point, a number of different things happen to you which you do not experience, but nevertheless they are real. God the Father places you, or God the Son, through the use of the Holy Spirit, and this is what's called the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, places you in Christ. You are identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, so that His death is applied to you, and you are separated from the penalty of sin forever, eternal security. You enter into a permanent relationship with God, and you are identified with Christ. This is called positional truth, your death with Christ positionally. I have been crucified with Christ. That happened to you at the point of salvation. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, what are we talking about here in terms of Christ living within you? Well, first of all, At the moment of salvation, one of the things that happens is all three members of the Trinity take up their residence in you. Passage in 1 Corinthians says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you are indwelt by Jesus Christ. You are also indwelt by God the Father. 
you are then in, indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. As a church-age believer, you are in the unique, privileged position of being indwelt by all three members of the Godhead. From the moment of salvation forward, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have taken up residence inside of you. There are two senses, though, in which Christ lives in you. One has to do with this positional sense, which we have just talked about. And we know this from a number of passages like Revelation 3.20, John 14.20, Romans 8.10, 2 Corinthians 13.5, and Colossians 1.27. But Galatians 2.20 is not talking about the indwelling of Christ. It's talking about something else. It's talking about the character of Jesus Christ that is produced in you. See, the contrast here is between the I who no longer live. This is the sin nature controlled, sin nature dominated life of you as an unbeliever. The essence of sin ultimately is arrogance, the emphasis on my will as opposed to God's will. This was expressed magnificently by Satan or Lucifer in his fall when he uttered his five I wills found in Isaiah 14. When he culminated in the last I will, I will be like the Most High. But he said, I will, I will, I will. It's what I want, not what God wants. The essence of sin is the assertion of your will over God's will. So Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and therefore it is no longer I who live. The old person that I was, the unregenerate person that I was, is no longer in effect. I am a new creature in Christ by virtue of positional truth. Christ lives in me. The goal of the, of the spiritual life is to develop the character of Jesus Christ. But character is a result of, of thought. You are what you think, and you, your life is the product of the decisions you make. And as a believer, you have a choice between thinking in the world system or thinking as God wants you to think in terms of divine viewpoint. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, And we have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is the Bible. Uh, Philippians 2.4 says, We are to th have this thinking in us which was in Christ Jesus. Uh, Romans 12.2 says, We are to renew our minds or renovate our thinking. The spiritual life is a life of thinking that may produce an emotional response. We may experience a certain exhilaration at times, but that's not the essence of the spiritual life. The essence of the spiritual life is not mysticism. The essence of the spiritual life is not intuition. The essence of the spiritual life is not how you feel. The essence of the spiritual life is your thought. Are you thinking like God thinks? Are you thinking as Christ thinks in terms of divine viewpoint? Because if your thinking is shaped by divine viewpoint, then it will radically transform the way you live and the way you feel. Because everything starts with thought. Whether you're, If you're thinking divine viewpoint, if you're thinking the thoughts of Christ with the mind of Christ, then the result of that is the character of Christ that is formed in you by the Holy Spirit. Turn with me over a couple of pages to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul will drive this point home at the conclusion of this epistle. 
Verse 16, he gives the command, but I say walk by means of the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The term flesh, sarx in the Greek, is a reference to the sin nature and the fact that the essence of the sin nature resides in the cell structure of the body. We have a contrast here between the sin nature of the Holy Spirit. That's it. You can either be living your life under the control of the sin nature or you're living your life under the control and influence of God the Holy Spirit. One or the other. And we are commanded as believers to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. It is a step-by-step procedure. You take one step at a time and as you walk with your feet and you take one step at a time as you walk spiritually. Moment by moment, from one decision to the next, we decide to be positive to doctrine. Anytime we decide to go negative, we're out here, we're out of fellowship, we're no longer controlled by the sin nature, we're control, I mean, no longer controlled by the Holy Spirit, we're under the control of the sin nature, and the Scripture says that we are in the status of carnality. How do we recover? We recover through 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not just the sins that we remember and confess. So through 1 John 1, 9, we are restored to fellowship, and once again, from that point on, we can begin to walk step by step by means of God the Holy Spirit. So the command in Galatians 5.16 is, But I say, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not carry out or fulfill the desire of the flesh. If you're walking, if you're dependent on God the Holy Spirit, thinking doctrine and applying doctrine, then you're not going to carry out the flesh over here, the sin nature. But if you go negative to God, negative volition, and you decide to uh, reject the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is called quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit, then the result will be sin nature control. And we see this battle exemplified in verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by means of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Notice, the law is not the basis for living the Christian life. The basis for living the Christian life is a moment-by-moment dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. You have to have some kind of means by determining whether or not you're over here in the filling of the Holy Spirit or over here under the control of the sin nature. You see, the sin nature, let me diagram it, looks something like this. Down here we have our area of weakness. Our area of weakness produces personal sins. This is the areas in which we so easily succumb to temptation. And we give in to overt sins, we give in to sins of the tongue, we give in to mental attitude sins, and the sin nature tempts us. That's the source of temptation, but the source of sin is our volition because we choose to sin. Whether we know it's a sin or not is not the issue. That same thing is true in criminality and in law. It's a basic principle of law. It doesn't matter whether you're aware of the fact that something is illegal or not. If you break the law or violate the law, you're still guilty and you could go to prison for doing something that you were unaware of was even illegal. The issue, so we can sin many different ways, many different kinds of ways, and it's always our responsibility because we wanted to do it and we did it. Doesn't matter what else, what rationale, doesn't matter the circumstances of the situation. We want to do it, we do it, we're responsible. And as soon as we sin, we're out of fellowship, and that kicks into gear the area of strength. 
The area of strength is where we do so many good things. And this we call human good because it's all those wonderful altruistic deeds that we perform, the wonderful thoughts that we have and everything, but they're energized by the flesh. It's still negative righteousness. Its production is the flesh, and the sin nature is motivated by lust patterns, lust, money lust, power lust, approbation lust, uh, materialism lust, sex lust. All these things motivate us, and we have go in one of two directions. These are our trends. One trend is towards licentiousness and antinomianism, which means we just think because of grace we can get away with whatever we want to, and it really won't matter. And then the other trend is towards legalism and asceticism, trying to do good things to please God. And what happens is we come down here and we commit some sin that just shocks us. Whatever it might be, whatever you think is one of the most awful of sins, you commit it. And then you you decide to get guilty, so you go up here in the area of human good, and you're going to do some act of penance in order to show God how sorry you were you committed that sin. Instead of going to the divine solution, which is confession, you're going to try to overcome it with some kind of good. And that's going to swing you over here into some kind of area of legalism. And you're really going to react to that particular kind of sin and those that are similar to that. And you're going to go on some kind of crusade. Now you're into crusader arrogance against that particular sin. And you're really getting caught up in all kinds of overt behavior. And this is what had happened in in, uh, in Antioch when the... Uh, Judaizers came. Or, of course, you can go into licentiousness and just say, well, it really doesn't matter. Christ died for my sins, so I can do whatever I want to. And Paul's response to that is, Meganoite, may it never be. The flesh wars against the Spirit. Verse 17, we're not under law. We have to be led by the Spirit, and we have to have some means of knowing why the good that we're doing is divine good rather than human good. And that's 1 John 1, nine. See, if we don't have a method or means or a mechanic for determining the difference between whether we're doing good from the sin nature or good from the source of the Holy Spirit, then you end up reducing the spiritual life to morality. Anything good you do is automatically termed divine good just because you're a believer. And you see, that's where many Christians are. They have not understood the principle that the Mosaic Law is no longer in effect for today. And so they're out there trying to impress God with their morality, and they've reduced spirituality to morality. But morality is a system that God has devised for the entire human race, whether believer or unbeliever. There are many unbelievers in the world who are incredibly moral much more moral than many believers that I know. And they are very much concerned with their personal righteousness and adhering to some sort of ethical code that is usually pretty good. But, see, God says that doesn't cut any ice with Him, brings no favor from Him because it's all human good. How do you know that the morality or the good that you are doing is from the fruit of the Spirit, is part of the fruit of the Spirit and done by means of the walking are done by walking by means of the spirit and that's 1 John 1 9 we know it by its fruit as well and that we see in 1 John I mean in Galatians 5:22 we'll skip the next three verses which deal with the deeds of the flesh go down to the fruit of the spirit the production of the holy spirit as you what are the dynamics here I want to back up what happens is you come to bible class 
and you learn doctrine. You learn Bible doctrine, and God the Holy Spirit teaches that to you, and it goes into your soul, and you believe it, and it becomes epinosis, knowledge. I'm just taking a shortcut through the whole process. becomes epinosis, knowledge, under the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it's stored in your soul. Then, as time goes by, there's opportunity for you to apply it in life. As you choose to apply it, God the Holy Spirit is then going to produce certain character qualities in your life. Your job is not to go out there and manufacture these character qualities in your life. They are the byproduct of this procedure. If, you, if you're studying doctrine, learning doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit, and applying it when you have the opportunity, then God the Holy Spirit is going to produce certain character transformations in your life. It's not your job to produce the character transformations. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. It's not the fruit of you in obedience to the Scripture. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And they're listed for us in verses 22 through 23. The fruit or the production of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-discipline. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Jesus Christ, that is believers, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's what we're talking about back in Galatians 2.20, that we have been crucified with Christ. That means takes us all the way back to our overall plan of salvation, at the point of salvation, which is phase one, you are saved from the eternal penalty of, of sin. That means your destiny is no longer the lake of fire, your destiny is heaven. But then there is phase two in which you are saved from the power of sin. Before you were a believer, you were enslaved to the sin nature. That was the only option you had was to sin. But in phase two, you have a choice. Holy Spirit or the power of the sin nature has been broken at the cross because you have been crucified with Christ. The sin nature with its passions and desires has been crucified. You are positionally no longer enslaved to the sin nature. But experientially, you may choose to be negative to doctrine, and you may choose to be enslaved to the sin nature. And then phase three is that you are saved from the presence of sin, and that's when you're absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord in a glorified status, and you no longer have a sin nature in your resurrected body. Let's turn back to Galatians 2.20. The issue here is character transformation, not the indwelling of Jesus Christ, but the but the transformation from the inside out of your character into the character of Jesus Christ. That's what the fruit of the Spirit exemplifies. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness. That's the character of Jesus Christ. How is your life transformed from your present character to the character of Christ? Only one way. Two power options in the spiritual life. Power option number one is the filling of the Holy Spirit through 1 John 1, 9. Power option number two is to apply, learn and apply the Word of God. The psalmist said, How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What is the issue? The issue is the Word of God under the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
I have been crucified with Christ positionally at the moment of salvation, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ, the character of Christ, who lives in me. And the life which I now live by means of the flesh, that is, by means of the sin nature, not, not the sin nature here, I now live in the flesh, here it's just a term for the body, physical life, mortal life, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He is the object of our faith. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. Here we see the motivation in the Godhead for salvation. What the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses, motivated by the love of God. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave. What's the motivation for God giving? It's His love. It's His character, not our character. It's who God is. It's who Jesus Christ is, not who we are. It's not our character that matters. It's Jesus Christ's character that matters. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. This is a preposition of substitution. He delivered Himself up as a substitute for me. He died on the cross in our place so that we would not have to die. And then we come down to uh, 2.21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let's look at another parallel passage here. Romans 8. Turn back to Romans 8.2 to see the same thought expanded in Romans. Remember, the Apostle Paul wrote the epistle to the Galatians at the very beginning of his ministry. He wrote the epistle to the Romans some years later. And Romans is a further development of what we find in Galatians. Romans 8. Chapter 1, let's just start with verse 1 because it's such an important verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about that a minute. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what sins you've committed. Doesn't matter how terribly they've shocked you or shocked other people or hurt other people. That is not the issue. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is the opposite of justification or vindication. You are either justified or condemned, one or the other. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are justified. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are condemned. And what the Scriptures tell you is that if you are a believer, there is no condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus. Why? The explanation begins in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. At the moment of salvation, you are set free from the law of sin and death. You are identified with Christ, and you have been, your sin nature has been crucified with Christ. Verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Remember, the law is on the outside, but the sin nature is on the inside. Though the law in its basic concept and structure is wholly just and good, 
Remember, the law is from God, and therefore the law is perfect. But the law cannot do the job of justification. The, the law cannot make you righteous before God. It can't transform you on the inside. It is weak through the flesh. But God provided the solution in sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This doesn't mean He was a sinner. Christ was impeccable. He was without sin completely. That's why He was qualified to go to the cross in our place. This is referring to the doctrine of the hypostatic union. The doctrine of the hypostatic union recognizes that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity and as such He is eternal. But approximately 4 B.C., the second person of the Trinity became a human being so that he was undiminished deity and true humanity, united together in one person forever. He is undiminished deity and true humanity, united together in one person forever without sin. As such, He was able to go to the cross and die for us. God could not die for us. A man had to die for men. He didn't die for angels. He didn't die for animals. He died for mankind. Because He was human, He had to become human in order to die for humanity. So He appeared in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. And as a substitute for sin, he took on the penalty for himself. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. He condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, what happens here is Jesus Christ fulfilled the law by paying the penalty for sin. The law says that the wages of sin is death, and Jesus Christ paid that penalty in full so that he could claim at the end The last thing he said on the cross was tetelestai. That is the perfect active infinitive of teleo. It is completed. It was put at the bottom of a bill. Paid in full is what that means. Jesus Christ paid it in full. That means you can add nothing to it. He was judged by the law for us so that Romans says he he was the end of the law. Verse 4, why did he do this? In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How do we fulfill the requirement of the law which demands absolute perfection? Because the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. So that we fulfill all demands of the law by virtue of our perfect imputed righteousness. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh... But according to the Spirit, we are, that is, believers. For those who are according to the flesh, and then it goes on into a different subject dealing with the uh, spiritual life. Back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. So Paul concludes by saying, I do not nullify. The Greek here is the perfect active indicative of atheteo, which means to set aside, to nullify, to void, to abrogate, to frustrate. 
Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God. He's going to stick with the message of the grace of God. Not like Peter. Peter gave up grace and went back to the law. But Paul says, I'm not going to give up on grace. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That's the point. If you give up on grace, if you start emphasizing legal obedience, if you start emphasizing overt actions, then you nullify or set aside the grace of God. You're no longer teaching grace. You're no longer living by grace. When you're not grace-oriented, you can't solve life's problems. When you're not living on the basis of grace, you're living on the basis of the sin nature, and you will be a failure in the spiritual life. So what have we seen? This is an important arena that we come to in verse 21 because we have finished the first division of Galatians. The theme of this first two chapters is justification by faith. The Galatians had deserted what Paul had taught them in terms of the gospel. Verse, chapter 1, verse 6, Paul reamed them out and said, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, a gospel of a different kind, a gospel which emphasized works against, over against grace. It was no longer a gospel of faith alone, in Christ alone, but a gospel of works. They included the law. And we saw the rehearsal of this in chapter 2, how this came about, and how it even swayed Barnabas and Peter to the other side. But Paul had to publicly confront them with this doctrinal desertion in front of the congregation in Galatia because it was dividing everyone. So he had to set the record straight. He had to make sure everybody understood the gospel. And next week we're going to start in Galatians chapter 3 and go through the first five verses where we see a major shift. We're going to talk about the implication of justification by faith, that it not only means that we are saved by grace, but we live the Christian life on the basis of grace. The Galatians had two errors. Error number one was they were trying to use the law in order to be saved. And error number two was they were trying to use legal concepts as a basis for maturing in the Christian life. So we'll take a look at that problem starting next Sunday morning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study this important doctrine this morning. To understand that our standing before you, our position before you is based not on our own morality, our own righteousness, our own good deeds, but totally and exclusively upon the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That it is who you are and what Jesus Christ did that matters, not who we are or what we do. And that because of what he did at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, we have perfect salvation for all eternity. Permanent, without end, we can do nothing to lose it. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, is not sure of their eternal destiny, that right now, in the privacy of their soul, they would accept this free gift. All you need to do is say, Father, I trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. That's it. You don't have to uh, perform any actions, go through any rituals, or do anything else. You simply accept the free gift. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, Father, we thank you again for this time and pray that you would help us to remember these important doctrines, store them in our soul for future application. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.